I don't like composing or improvising or working out a piece if there's someone in the next room who could technically be hearing me because I just don't feel like I can be alone with my own mistakes, my own explorations. You know, to me, writing a song is as personal as like taking a shit, basically. So you don't want someone standing in the room going like, hey, uh, it's really like in order to have that kind of stream of consciousness, any, any, you know, any note is possible, any vocalization is possible, any word is possible. You can't be sort of subconsciously performing for an audience. It just doesn't work. You need to get the audience miles away so that you can create in, in peace. Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by leading innovators to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist, the CEO of Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimize my workday. On today's show, I speak to singer-songwriter and all-around rock star, Amanda Palmer. You might know Amanda from being one half of the Dresden Dolls, or you might know her as I did through her TED Talk, The Art of Asking, which has been viewed by over 10 million people. Amanda is a total innovator in the world of music and raised $1.2 million on a Kickstarter campaign several years ago to be able to produce her own solo album independent from a record label. One of the things I loved most about this chat with Amanda is hearing her very intensive step-by-step process for creating and delivering her amazing TED Talk. Over to Amanda to find out about how she works. So, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I I first discovered you by your TED Talk, The Art of Asking, along with 10 million other people. And from there, I discovered your music. And I got to say, your song, A Mother's Confession, has got to be my favorite. Um, it just It makes me cry every time, literally. Oh, thank you. I'm actually, so the version that you know, because that's the only recorded version, is actually a demo. And I'm, I'm, uh, I, 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 that one has just finally made it onto the shortlist for my next record that I'm recording this fall. So I'm, I'm excited about that. It's funny, sometimes the songs that I think are just going to be real toss offs and not stick are the ones that really resonate with people, probably for that reason, because they're, because they happen so quickly and they're so stream of consciousness that I don't think they're important. But actually, that's usually the art that sticks around. That's, uh, that's so funny, isn't it? And, and, and I guess like in, in terms of like what what you have done, what you have written, what you have produced, I I just see you being so prolific in terms of what, what you do. And, and I'm really keen to delve into what happens behind the scenes of how you work to achieve this. And and so look, I guess to start with, I know that you travel a lot and your days must look really different. But I'm curious, are there any like daily rituals or routines that you have in your life that kind of, you know, set the day up well? Uh well it depends which self you're talking to. It depends if you're talking to the like absolutely depleted no sense of judgment harassed uh teenage uh wine drinking cigarette smoking <laughs> non-meditating shit show of a who fucking cares we're all gonna die anyway person yeah uh, or the other person um but- i 
Yeah, I mean, I have a few... I have a few rituals that I try to make daily rituals and actually just having them exist in my life as a benchmark for where I'm at is almost useful enough because I have never, I have never really in my life with, with exceptions of being on retreat, which I do try to do as kind of a binge model of uh, discipline. Um, I've never had a routine. Um, I, I almost have so little routine that I'm almost attached to having no routine. And that is my routine. Mm, that, that, that's um, really interesting. But I have different, I have different kinds of lives. I have the life I live when I'm traveling. I have the life I live when I'm living in an Airbnb. I have the life I live when I'm living in a hotel room with my husband and kid. I have a life I live when I'm in a tour bus. And, you know, I, I've definitely hammered down some real do's and don'ts and in the in the realm of the do's and don'ts even if I'm not sticking to everything which literally never happens I at least can use those as a measuring stick to see how I'm doing and how depleted I am versus how on course I am and a couple of those rituals are uh about where my phone is where it is first thing in the morning and where it is last thing at night. Um, if I sleep with my phone in the bed or beside my bed, I know I'm not doing great. Mm -hmm. If I check it first thing in the morning or I'm reading it last thing at night, I know I'm not doing great. Um, and then the other, the other benchmark is, uh, just around, my morning ritual and do I take my time to ease into the day and give myself a little bit of self-care and space, whether that means stretching or getting to a yoga class or even just sitting down and doing 10 minutes of meditation, or do I just allow myself to get pulled in by the sucking tide of chaos and to-do list? And um, that's another benchmark that I use. And then another one is meals. Do I actually take time to sit down and chew my food and eat it? Or am I stuffing a piece of something into my face while I'm doing work? And those are, those are like my three big basics. Mm -hmm. And other than, you know, work practices and what I'm actually doing while I'm so-called engaged in work, those are really good things to look at if I want to know where I'm at. And honestly, since having a kid, I've thrown the entire book out the window. <laughs> haven't like, we all? <laughs> a good day is a good day, even if I haven't sat down for a meal, haven't meditated, have had two glasses of wine and s sneaked off to smoke a cigarette. It's still a good day if the baby's alive and everyone's relatively happy. I just have completely trashed my 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 old rule book. Uh, I love that. I love that. I I'm interested in your ritual around your phone because I think so many people live by their phone they wake up the phone is the first thing that they check and they go to sleep and it's the last thing that they check when when did that start to become like a one of those kind of rituals or or checks for you if you like where when when did that happen oh well it probably it probably developed right along with instant feedback so i don't remember I'm trying to think back to when I got my first cell phone and then I got my first BlackBerry. <laughs> um, 
and where I kept my black my blackberry sort of plugged in was it near my bed where where was it but i I would imagine it would have been sometime around then like in the late late aughts when all of a sudden there was always something to look at it wasn't just like a few emails here and there it was actual social connection and actual there might be something really exciting happening all the time all the time all the time and that you know i my band came sort of you know came of age and i came of age in my 20s right alongside the coming of age of the internet and smartphones so i went through college with no cell phone and pretty much no email address but then as soon as I hit my mid-20s and started my band, that whole explosion happened at the same time. And and I, you know, I have a really conflicted relationship with it because I've built a whole career. And, you know, in some cases, like whole movements and ways of doing art and ways of being that are Internet-based – but I also feel like I've really tasted the dark side in terms of it disintegrating the quality of my life and it eating away at the quality of my real relationships. And uh, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of thinking about which part of it's I want in my life, which parts of it are controlling me and which parts I'm controlling. And I definitely see a mirror in Neil, who's also very, very phone panicked all the time. Um, and that relationship with our phones also changed when we had a kid because my sensitivity around it went through the roof mm. as I, as I really looked in the mirror and saw a baby seeing two grown adults who were just glued to their phones. And I thought, yeah, this is just not a good picture. This is not good for him to be seeing. We really need to change our habits. Mm, I love that you're so conscious around that. And, and I imagine like when you're trying to get good focused creative work done the, the phone can be quite a distraction and I, I I want to explore like what what is your approach to creative work I've I've heard you say that you need sonic distance and I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear more like about how you approach that like when you're sitting down to write a song let's say uh, well, I think what you're probably referring to is in some interview, I talked about needing to be far enough away from other people that I couldn't be heard. Mm. And that's, that's definitely true. I don't like composing or improvising or working out a piece if there's someone in the next room who could technically be hearing me because I just don't feel like I can be alone with my own mistakes, my own explorations. You know, to me, writing a song is as personal as like taking a shit, basically. So you don't want someone standing in the room going like, hey, uh, it's really like in order to have that kind of stream of consciousness, any any, you know, any note is possible, any vocalization is possible, any word is possible. You can't be sort of subconsciously performing for an audience. It just doesn't work. You need to get the audience miles away so that you can create in, in peace. Um, and then that's something that I have been in relationship with since I was a little kid. My, my parents had a piano and it was in the living room of our house, which had a door that closed. But even then, it, by the time I was 14 or 15 years old and I had habits, I wouldn't compose a song if there was anyone in the house, even if they were all the way up in the attic, 500 feet away. Mm. So, uh, I 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm constantly figuring out, like looking at my own consciousness and figuring out what my habits and patterns are. Some of them I try to break because I feel like, oh, that's just a stupid superstitious habit. You should get rid of it. And some of them I just have to respect, you know, in terms of like my song sphincter, it won't open up if there's someone in the room. I just need to respect that and make sure that I put myself in a good space um, so that I can relax, so that I can let this flow without the kind of subconscious boogeyman of performativeness getting in the way of what I'm doing. Mm, I, I imagine that that motherhood must have changed how how you achieve that um, that kind of distance from from people around you, from the world when 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 you're writing a song can you can you talk about what what that looks like now i think you've um your son ash is about three years old is is that right yeah he's almost three yeah yeah so how how does that work with motherhood and and achieving that um that state that you need to achieve to to write music well you know what's actually ironic is that i found that getting married and actually not even getting married, but attempting to cohabitate with Neil was the far more invasive step than having a child. Mm. Cause I, um, you know, I, I somehow, you know, I, I somehow find that Neil's presence is a lot more invasive than the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's also just because Neil has a huge personality He's super dominant. He takes up a lot of space, a lot of air. He kind of, you know, there's a lot of activity around him and a lot of panic around him all the time. So if you're hanging out in a room or even in three rooms away from Neil Gaiman, there's going to be a lot of just like static drama, whatever. It's not going to be you know, he's not a cool, calm, collected working partner. <laughs> he's like always running around with his hair on fire. Um, and that was a big adjustment for me, trying to cohabitate with him at all. That actually felt like a bigger leap than the leap that I've taken as a mother. I remember, I remember the first time I really learned the lesson and then put it into practice before I had a big show and Neil and I were in the same city and I finally bit the bullet and was like, I love you, but we have to stay in separate hotel rooms <laughs> because I've gone through this with you and it doesn't work because if we're in the same hotel room, I'm, I need to rehearse the night before the gig. I need to go through my set list. I need to warm up my voice. It's just not going to work. And I've tried to do the thing with you where I kick you out of the room it just feels disrespectful it doesn't work it puts us at odds with each other I just didn't get to need my own space so let's do it um and actually like I can think of the two shows where I made those realizations and drew the straight line one was a big show I had at Sydney Opera House it was a big deal you know giant main stage Sydney Opera House one time show lots of rehearsing and I booked us one room. And then there we were the night before the show. And I was like, oh, fuck, it's 630. I need to rehearse all this material. Neil, I have to ask you to leave because I just need some space. I need to warm up my voice. I'm not going to go out in the street. I don't really want to kick you out, but I have to kick you out because I know that you're incapable of just sitting there and being quiet like your constant comments. So 
would you leave for two hours? And he was like, no problem. No problem, darling. It's your, it's your Sydney Opera House show. No problem. I'll just nip around the corner to a cafe. No problem. And I won't even text you. I'll be nodding your hair. No problem. And like five minutes later, he's texting me something amusing and going, are you almost finished? Do you mind if I just come back and just sit in the corner? And I was like, no. And, and shortly after that, I had my TED Talk. And I was like, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> Let's stay in the same hotel room, but literally the night before my talk, uh-uh, you're going, <laughs> you're going down the hall, dude. I can't deal with you and my job at the same time. You're too distracting, and I love you, but fuck off. <laughs> and he, and, it, and we'd, we'd sort of been through the fire, so he, he respected it, and it's the thing that's actually made our relationship work. And. This is also a takes two to tango situation. We've been in the, you know, I've been on the opposite side of this where he really needs his workspace and I have to scram and we respect each other. We, but we've had to learn the hard way. We've had to really step on each other before we've gotten into the space where we can respect each other. Mm, that's that's great that you've got to that realization. And and on the topic of your TED talk, I would love to know because that, that talk has had such a, profound impact on so many people I'm sure it's it's definitely one of my favorite TED talks I'm I'm really interested to hear what what did that process look like in designing preparing and then delivering that talk I'd I'd, I'd love you to talk me through what what that whole several months I imagine looked like um, I started with a very simple idea which is I I knew about TED I knew about TED talks I didn't know a whole lot um, you know, and looking back, I knew almost nothing. I didn't even understand that TED was the annual conference that only happens in one place. Um, but I, I had a real hankering to share my story, the connections that I had really discovered between street performing and, and the music industry and what I had learned and why I was into crowdfunding. Um, and so I, I reached out to someone I knew who had a TED contact and I said, I think I want to do this. And they said, we just need some examples of you public speaking. And I said, no, no problem. I've done tons of public speaking. It actually turns out I had done no public speaking. I just sort of thought I had because I'm a rock star and I do a lot of interviews, but I'd actually never gotten up and given a straight talk. Um, so the first thing I did was I sort of drafted a, a little rough draft of the talk I tweeted it out to my fans that I was going to be giving a rough draft of a talk at Harvard and I picked Harvard on purpose so that it would look impressive. And I, I, I had a friend film it with one camera and it was very, very rough and tumble. I think it's even out on the internet somewhere. And it was a very, 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 you know, beta prototype of what my Ted talk would become a couple years later. And this was even before I did Kickstarter. And before all the controversy of 2012 and stuff yeah. happened. So I, I sent that off to Ted. I think they stuck it in their back burner. And then, you know, a year went by or a year or two went by. And my Kickstarter happened. The huge controversy happened where, you know, people were upset that I had even used Kickstarter. They were upset that I was still asking my fans to volunteer to play on stage with me. And Ted called up and said, okay, do your TED talk. And 
at that point, I really had something to prove and I had something to say because I was being so slaughtered in the press. And the first thing I did is I just I, I wrote a stream of consciousness bunch of text. I recorded myself speaking it and it was 50 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> this was supposed to be a six minute talk. Um, and I, I mean, I won't even get into the back and forths with Chris Anderson at TED. You know, they originally invited me to play a piece of music and just give a quick introduction about my Kickstarter. And I was like, uh-uh, no, I think I have a real talk in me. Um, so I negotiated up uh, uh, at many levels to actually get my talk to 12 minutes. It's, you know, it was going to be a song with an introduction, and then it was going to be a six-minute talk and a song. And then it finally turned into a 12-minute talk. And I uh, I worked with a friend of Neil's who I had just met who was a magician and essayist named Jamie Ian, uh, Jamie Ian Swiss. I called him up and I said, you're the only person I know who knows anything about Ted. Will you help me with this talk? And he said, okay, well, read to me what you've got. And I, I read him the whole 45-minute spiel. <laughs> and he said, well, I can... I can see you have a long way to go. If you really want me to help you do this, I'm in. Let's let's start working on it. And he became my phone guru. And over the next two months, I just drafted and drafted and drafted and cut and shaped and economized and redrafted and redrafted. And by the time I got my talk down to about 15 minutes, it was in the kind of shape where I could start rehearsing it. And I rehearsed it for a room full of people at my house. I rehearsed it for a room full of fellows at Harvard that I was part of. I, re I rehearsed it to anyone that would, that would listen to it over the phone. I just rehearsed the shit out of it. And even up to the last day, I was changing words and sentences. I was changing adjectives. I was changing a few little sentences here and there. I was timing myself constantly, trying to hit the 12-minute mark and working on the pacing and trying to figure out where I could really pause and where I had to pick up the pace. I drew an entire map of the my hometown with little memory markers of where things in my talk were happening. I just I just went deep and you know, even the day before the talk in Long Beach, California, I was walking around with my you know, with my headphones just recording my talk over and over again, trying to memorize it, trying to make links between one idea and other so I wouldn't get tripped up. And even then, I tripped up my TED talk. They edited really. They edited that shit well. Like, there's some. If you if you went and looked at the original, there were some spots where I got lost and I had to find my place. And it was a it was a harrowing performance. You get one shot, dude, and that's it. You don't get a redo. So if you lose your place, you don't. You know, you don't get to get back. You know, go back and start over. That's it. Mm, absolutely. How did how did you manage your nerves on the day? Because I imagine it would have been just completely different to what you normally do on stage. Yes, I did not drink the night before. <laughs> I went to bed early. I went to bed in a room alone without a chattering husband. <laughs> uh, I I rehearsed my talk a couple times before I went to bed. I drank a couple glasses of water. I went to sleep. I woke up at the crack of dawn. I worked out. Um, and then I just like let go and let good. I just, I said, this is it. At a certain point, I'm going to have to let go. I have to stop rehearsing. I have to stop fretting. I've done the work. It's either going to happen or it's not. And, and I, you know, I went for broke. 
But, you know, I also I have a home team advantage over a lot of those other TED speakers. I'm comfortable on a stage. So I dealt I didn't deal with stage fright, but I dealt with, memor, you know, memorization fright. Like, am I really going to remember 12 minutes worth of TED talk? Mm-hmm. But, you know, being on a stage in front of a thousand people, I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I'm used to that. That's mm-hmm. not hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What what an amazing story. An amazing outcome as well. Do you um, create deadlines to get things done? Absolutely. That's the way I have written my past three or four songs. I've gone to my Patreon, which is, you know, my subscribership of about 11,000 people. Uh, I go to them. I tell them I'm going in the studio this week. I'll have a song written by the end of the week. You'll get a demo. And, you know, since there's also a financial reward attached, because if I don't send out my demo, I don't get paid. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty, it's a... it's pretty motivating and especially with the kid and the lack of, you know, sacred time to sit down and write. I just book a studio. I go in, I sit my ass down at a piano and at 11 o'clock I say, okay, I've got till five. This is songwriting day. I don't do it every day. You know, I do it once every month or once every couple of months, but when I do it, I don't fuck around. I just sit down and I write and whatever comes out, that's it. So it better be really good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, and look, just to, to sort of finish off, I had a few kind of rapid fire questions um, for you. So look, a, a large part of staying focused fit is tuning into useful and insightful stimulus and, and tuning out the rest. So I'm curious about a few things that you're consuming at the moment. Firstly, what are, what are like a, a couple of podcasts that you're currently loving? Um, I don't actually listen to many podcasts at all because I don't have time. And since I'm a musician, most of my ear real estate is taken up by work. Fair enough. Um, but I do listen to NPR. So I am a massive fan of Radiolab. Mm-hmm. And I know Radiolab has a podcast. So I listen to that, not religiously, but if I did have a podcast religion, it would probably be Radiolab. Um, I just love the way it's edited together. And I love the way the thoughts connect. And I also listen to the TED Radio Hour, um, which is sort of a great way of also staying connected to the TED community and, and getting my brain sort of massaged with interesting ideas. Love it. What about e-newsletters? I don't know what your relationship is with your inbox, but are there any e-newsletters that you actually look forward to receiving and reading? Um, Yeah, I subscribe to the Daily Coast, which is an American political uh, email letter, and I I click on that every couple of days. Um, And I also, I I follow the e-newsletters of the the prominent politicians in my area, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, um, just to see what they're up to and see where they're pointing the electorate towards. And uh, a couple of my local politicians who I wouldn't expect you guys to know over in Australia, but the, you know, the sort of local grassroots guys who are, who are trying to get democratic seats in Congress and who I feel need my support. I pay attention to all of their stuff. Mm, cool. And what's a great book that you've read recently? Um, I'm glad you asked. I am just finishing up an incredible book called Writing My Wrongs by Shakur Sengur. And it's 
uh, I spent the weekend in prison two weekends ago, um, not because I got arrested on uh, any heavy charges, but I was there for a restorative justice retreat, um, and it really blew my mind. I, I, I had never spent time in a prison before, and I, I was there for a full weekend of inmates' stories and victim and survivor stories and everyone sharing and holding space for one another. And it was, it was life changing. And I actually experienced a kind of a weird Ben's culture shock coming back into the real world after being sort of immersed in this very honest, very wholehearted, super vulnerable place that these inmates and these survivors were, were speaking from. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to keep reading about what I had been learning about and someone recommended this book to me and it's, uh, it's called writing my wrongs, life, life, death and redemption in American prison. And it's, it's basically the story of, you know, what it, what it is like to get stuck in the American prison system at a young age for, you know, gang related, drug related homicide and the effect it has. And it, it, it it helped me actually sort of adjust back to the real world to be able to take the book out with me and stay connected to the inmates that I had bonded with. Mm, wow, that sounds amazing. And finally, how can people find out more about you and consume more of your amazing music and work? Uh, well, you can Google me easily, and I'm on the socials pretty much everywhere as just at Amanda Palmer. Um if you're really into me and you want to be in a committed relationship with me, which I would love, I swear I'm really nice. Um, my community is really nice. My community is beautiful. And uh, I would join my Patreon. It's it's a dollar a month if you can afford that. And it's actually – it's a really nice place on the internet. It's one of the things that I really wasn't expecting. Uh, but, I mean, the – the world of Facebook and Twitter and, and everywhere else has just gotten, sometimes it just feels so hard and toxic to be on the internet that you need to, you want to just sort of go where the nice, intelligent people are. And I've actually found that my Patreon is this panacea. Um, and there's 11,000 people there. I write a blog that's often public, but sometimes private just for my community. People are really wonderful. I put my content out there, you know, every couple of weeks. I write blogs at least a few times a week. And that's a really good way to stay connected. And you can kind of pick and choose what you read and what you consume. I send downloads. I'm doing my own. I'm starting my own podcast. That's really fun. Um, so, yeah. And if not, you know, just find me on Twitter, or Instagram, Facebook. I'm in all those places. And I sort of, you know, I'm sort of slutty. I post around all the time. So it's... <laughs> Not as awesome, me. Awesome, awesome, Amanda. It's been such a treat talking to you. And whenever you're touring in Melbourne, which is where I live, there is a couch for you at my place anytime you need one. Well, I, I will hopefully be back next year when I'm touring on my new record. Excellent, so, excellent. 2019, baby. I'll be there. Hey there. That's it for today's episode. If you're looking for more tips to improve the way you work, I write a short monthly newsletter that contains three cool things that I've discovered that help me work better, which range from interesting research findings through to gadgets that I'm loving. You can sign up for that at howiwork.co. That's howiwork.co. 
And you're probably sick of podcasts telling you to give them a review in iTunes if you like the episode. So I promise I won't ask you to do that. But, you know, if the mood strikes you, then go for it. And if you like this episode and you want more, just hit the subscribe button. See you next time.